to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are joined by Anel Sheline. Uh, Anel is a research fellow for the Middle East at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. She is also a non-resident fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, and her research focuses on religious authority in the Middle East. Anel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ezra. Happy to be here. Uh, so maybe we could start um, by discussing what drew you to your research focus. I mean, what brought you to your focus on the intersection of national and religious identities? Definitely. So my research has a deep intellectual debt to the work of Dr. Jocelyn Cesari, who's a professor of religion and politics at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And her work identifies how the process of state building throughout much of the Middle East involved the grafting of nascent state institutions onto existing religious institutions that had previously provided social services, everything from education to healthcare. And she focuses on how Islam itself was transformed in the process and made to serve the nationalizing agenda of these young state systems. Um, I also owe a debt to my professor at George Washington University, Dr. Harris Milonas, who first introduced me to ideas of how the process of early modern state building transformed identities and societies around the world. So my own work sort of combines those two threads and focuses on how choices made during the foundational period of early modern state building left legacies on the choices um, that were available to state-affiliated religious institutions who were suddenly tasked with addressing the issue of Salafi jihadi violence in the early 21st century. Uh, interesting. Uh, and you carry over some of these issues into the article that you published uh, in Middle East Law and Governance, um, which you titled Shifting Reputations for Moderation, Evidence from Qatar, Jordan, and Morocco. Uh, and that article is included in our first issue of MELG uh, this year, uh, which was edited by Gillian Schwedler and Mark Lynch. Um, in the article, you examine the use of the label of moderation as a reputational strategy. And so, I mean, in the post-9-11 era, the dichotomy between moderate and radical Islam has been widely employed in Western analysis. And I wonder if you could speak to the to the usefulness of this categorization. Uh, definitely. Dr. Gillian Schwidler, I, I think, is probably the clearest example of a scholar who has sort of unpacked the prevalence of those two ideas and the extent to which they are useful or not useful. You know, I think essentially coming out of the the post 9-11 context, you obviously had a lot of concern, not only from the United States, um, but, but also in the Middle East, because following 9-11, there were also instances of violence. Um, for example, the, the Amman Hotel bombings in Jordan in 2005, there were the 2003 bombings in Casablanca, there were uh, bombings in, in Kuwait and in Saudi Arabia. So just across the region, it was, it was becoming evident that governments really needed to respond to acts of terrorism that, that often were either motivated by or perceived as affiliated with violent extremists and often Salafi jihadi violent extremism. And so on the one hand, governments had to respond to this. And so there was there was definitely a sort of internal pressure for the need for greater security, greater government control over religious institutions, which would have happened 
I, I think, regardless of any sort of external pressure. But then combined with that, you had this pressure or demand coming from powerful foreign actors like the United States that sort of placed this framework of moderation or radicalism on top of um, what what was sort of happening already inside these states. And so I think what, what you end up finding was that these Arab governments then then framed their own actions within this sort of dichotomy of, of promoting moderation in response to this sort of radicalism or extremism, which made sense when they were trying to communicate to a non-Muslim audience, but which read as very sort of foreign to a Muslim audience for whom the notion of, of having to kind of moderate Islam was, was deeply insulting um, or, or just sort of implied that there was something wrong with Islam. And I, I think this contributed to the, the perception of the lack of credibility of, of these sorts of discourses and the sort of further undermining of credibility of official state religious institutions. Yes. I mean, it's very interesting that you see these sort of external and internal pressures sort of working in tandem. And I wonder if it's possible to be a bit more specific about the kinds of external pressures that were being faced in the region. Yeah, so there there were some definitely key moments with within this in terms of kind of what was coming out of the U.S. and how those kinds of messages were interpreted by sort of Arab Arab governments or just Muslim uh, religious institutions in the rest of the world. So initially, kind of right after nine eleven, there's very much this sort of security oriented reaction to to Islam. We saw a lot of Islamophobia. We saw a lot of sort of surveillance of Muslim populations in the U.S. and in Europe. And then following that, we actually, especially with sort of the reset or what was perceived as a reset that came about with the Obama administration and sort of this notion that the U.S. government needed to reach out to Muslim populations, both inside the U.S. and abroad. We had Obama's famous Cairo speech from 2009, and there was very much a, a push from inside the State Department, for example, on the need to, to engage with religious leaders and to, to get away from sort of having everything be framed from a security perspective and to really think harder about how to engage with religion. Um, but that also had these sort of unintended consequences in terms of suddenly empowering specific religious voices um, in a way that they might not have otherwise, or sort of reifying certain aspects of religion and sort of holding them up as these objects for social science or, or for U.S. government um, offices to, to sort of study and engage with in a way that, that didn't, that sort of essentialized them and didn't recognize the way in which, you know, religion is integral to, to all societies and, and can't be sort of set apart and sort of treated as this, this object to be used instrumentally to sort of push back against violent extremism. Um, and so in this shift from a sort of security focus to, a, to greater engagement with religion, um, what kind of impact did that have on the kinds of actors that were being supported by the West, especially the U.S., um, and also the impact that had on the relation between actors domestically um, within countries in the region? Um, the U.S. was really looking for 
for so-called moderate Muslim partners. For example, there was a, a famous RAND study that came out about the need to engage with moderate Muslim networks, for example, which is often seen as, as, as one example of, of a lot of the language that was coming out of the U.S. government in the, the post 9-11 period um, in trying to, to sort of engage with, with moderate Muslims. We have to find the moderate Muslims and engage with them in order to push back against violent extremism. Um, which obviously is problematic in, in many ways. Um, but um, the, the point there being that this really gave many Arab governments the opportunity to demonize their Islamist political movements, essentially that within this broader um, post-9-11 Islamophobia and just concerns about what these uh, scary you know, Islamist terrorists were up to. And then especially after 2011, we saw it again, the sort of demonization of Islamist groups. There's just been a whole range of opportunities for, for Arab governments to portray their legitimate, um, often, you know, democratic a political opposition as as terrorist and and often because these these groups are often islamist and and so that gets back to certain dynamics that came out of the cold war context in which ruling regimes were able to successfully marginalize and demonize um, leftist opposition groups but it was more difficult for them to to really put away Islamist groups, many of which were initially seen as politically quietist and not really a, a political threat in any way, and were sort of allowed to to operate and, and gain greater power kind of during the the eighties and nineties. Um, but then, as regimes started to realize that that groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, actually could pose a political threat and were gaining a lot of credibility among their populations, you know, governments suddenly were were not averse to imprisoning these groups and, um, you know, in other ways repressing them. But, you know, that that used to get, um, especially in the 90s, you know, various U.S. pressures to, to try to push back against these authoritarian measures and, and trying to suppress, you know, democratic movements. And, and so then after 9-11, it, there was suddenly much less pressure on Arab governments, you know, from the United States, because it was very easy for Arab governments to say, well, these groups are Islamists and, you know, they're, that means they're terrorists. And so we have to lock them up. And so the, the point there just being that, you know, by the United States sort of on the one hand promoting this notion of moderate Islam, which as, as we said previously is, is, um, kind of inherently insulting for many Muslims, and at the same time not distinguishing between different Islamist groups, that there is a difference, you know, between a group, you know, an, an, an avowed group um, like Al-Qaeda that is that is committed to, to acts of violence, you know, that is, that's what their main purpose is, um, as opposed to a group like the Muslim Brotherhood, which you know, has committed to, to nonviolence and, and primarily engages in social service activities and, and various um, attempts to encourage, you know, they, they are Islamists, which, which simply means that they want a greater role for Islam in public life, but again, that they are nonviolent. And so I think it's just really important to keep in mind the ways that, that U.S. policy has created a context within which the, many of these groups are are Im imprisoned and, and targeted with state repression, and there's really almost no um, pushback from 
from an actor like the United States, which which historically, you know, has has made claims to be, you know, in favor of of trying to encourage greater democracy and and sort of allowing for um, greater democratization and, and political development across the world. Um, so I, I just consider that a real blind spot and and something that I I hope moving forward the United States will think harder about distinguishing these these various um, you know actual terrorist threats from legitimate political actors. Um, so we've spoken quite a bit about the the post nine eleven environment and the impacts of the the moderation discourse, um, but. In the article, you also emphasize the importance of 2011, uh, and you note that there are shifts in designations of moderation uh, occurring in a number of countries in the region. Um, to what extent were, were these shifts a function of actual policy changes in these states? So the, the way I talk about it in the article really focuses um, on the extent to which that it, that it wasn't about policy changes. That's not to say that policy changes didn't occur, but, but I'm interested in the ways in which um, certain actors and institutions that had previously been sort of framed or perceived as, as embodying this so-called moderate Islam were suddenly redefined and no longer seen as moderate. So one that I focus on in particular is the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and, and also Islamist groups in general across the region that, you know, sort of prior to the, the Arab uprisings of, of 2011 had been quite, you know, had, had tried to engage ac- across the region in, in various political parties or, or just as, as forms of activism, but had never really been, been permitted to engage politically. And that 2011 um, in, in some contexts, like Tunisia and Egypt, suddenly Islamists did have some measure of access to, to levers of power. And, and, and fairly quickly that was then removed, I mean, especially in, in the Egyptian case. But that, that suddenly governments across the region saw the, the extent to which Islamists could, could be a threat. I mean, they were already seen as a threat, but if the threat had really been manifested in some of these cases. And so the extent to which the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, was was tolerated, that declined precipitously. And and one casualty of that was Qatar, that prior to 2011, Qatar had been seen as somewhat of a of a being on the sort of the moderate end of the the spectrum in terms of thinking about their promotion of of limited press freedom with Al Jazeera, for example, their sponsorship of the the cleric Yusuf al-Qardawi, who prior to 9-11 was already very much associated with the notion of wasatiya or, or the, the Quranic concept of moderation. And that after 2011, in the context of governments like Egypt, also Saudi Arabia, also the UAE, um, governments across the region really attacking um, Islamist groups or or framing these groups as, as suddenly much more problematic um, than they than they had kind of in the previous decade or so. Suddenly it was no longer acceptable that Qatar had a, a relatively close relationship with, with it, its um, sort of local branch of, of the Muslim Brotherhood or, or, or its, its outreach to the Muslim Brotherhood across the region. And so we saw the, the shift in how Qatar was perceived, especially then being manifested with actions like the the blockade that Saudi Arabia and the UAE led, you know, that that led to the the Gulf crisis, which is ongoing, this sort of 
um, alienation of Qatar from the rest of the GCC. And that um, this was also reflected in, in U.S. policy, I mean, especially in the context of the Trump administration. But it, it had happened prior to that as well, sort of ongoing um, questions around around support for the Brotherhood or perceived support that was sometimes that the Obama administration was sometimes seen as being too willing to allow the Muslim Brotherhood to take power, such as in Egypt, whereas now under under Trump, they they can they keep flirting with with um, declaring the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization that hasn't yet happened. But Secretary of State Pompeo has has brought it up numerous occasions. So that's that's just one example of how the notion of moderation that had become quite salient in sort of foreign policy discourse, both from from the U.S., but also kind of in the Middle East, how it was something that was sort of valuable to promote in the in the, the wake of 9-11, suddenly was then shifted after 2011, and certain groups that had previously been seen as moderate were suddenly framed as, as um, dangerous or, or extremist. Ah, great. Uh, and I'm glad that you brought up Qatar, um, which is also one of the three main cases you focus on in the article. And I found the comparison between it and Jordan to be to be very interesting, as they both lost some of that pre-2011 images being moderate. Um, but the Jordanian case also seemed to be very, very different than that of Qatar. Um, could you explain a little what happened there? Yeah, so I um, Jordan is, is quite different, I think, um, in part because... Jordan was one of the first movers on on kind of trying to engage in what I refer to in the article as nation branding of kind of trying to develop this reputation for itself as this bastion of moderation in the region. And some of this just has to do with some of the, the specifics of Jordan itself as, you know, having historically been quite dependent on foreign support, you know, continuing to be the um, sort of recipient of many and, you know, displaced populations in the region and relying heavily on on both sort of support from, from Arab neighbors, but also from American and, and European donors just to sort of keep its society going. So it makes sense that Jordan would be attuned to the, the, the winds of um, kind of what flavor its, its discourse needed to take. And so it was aware of the fact that, that you know, it, it was going to be a good thing to be to be sort of this bastion of moderation, um, and so certain things like, for example, the the Amman message, um, which was you know a very commendable effort by by King Abdullah II to gather Muslim religious leaders from around the world um, to come together and really define what it meant to be a Muslim. What everyone could agree on was central to Islam, and this was done especially in response to groups like al-Qaeda um, declaring that certain other Muslims were, were apostates, sort of the, the declaration of takfir. And so the Amman message was, was an effort to push back against that and to say, no, you, you know, you, we can all agree from you know, all different forms of Islam that, that, that there are certain shared elements of, of what it means to be a Muslim. And what's interesting is the Amman message is often seen as a response to the Jordan hotel bombing, the Amman hotel bombings. But actually, the, the Amman message preceded them in terms of the, the sort of efforts to, to get this project started. And then, unfortunately, the, the bombings happened around the same time. 
I mean, that was not the only thing Jordan did. Jordan was also very involved in in the creation um, of the the religious harmony week that happens at at the UN each year. And and also prior to 9-11, Jordan had been engaged in in various um, sort of activities related to kind of the, the promotion of Jordan as a holy land, wanting to emphasize the the fact that Jordan also has a place to a role to play in sort of Christian religious history. So so not to say that this was all sort of opportunistically done after 9-11, but just that Jordan was already quite well placed to engage in this kind of messaging. And so that's part of why it was a, a first mover. Some other examples of what Jordan did were were things like the Al-Bayt Institute, drawing on the, the religious heritage of the Hashemite family as descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. Also the Great Tafsir Project, the Common Word Initiative that was reaching out to, to Christians specifically as kind of, you know, searching for commonalities between Christianity and Islam. So all, all of this had been going on, and especially under the, the auspices first of... Prince, Crown Prince Hassan, so under King Hussein, the Crown Prince, his brother, had been involved with a lot of this kind of work. And then after Hussein's son Abdullah became king instead of Hassan, a lot of that work was then passed to Prince Ghazi, who has been involved in, in much of, of this sort of religious messaging, that much of which is directed abroad. Uh, and is there quite a clear distinction between the kinds of messages that are intended for, for domestic audiences and those that are uh, intended for uh, audiences abroad. Yes, yeah, so this this was one of the, the the key things I found in my field work was the distinction between what these official religious institutions in Jordan were saying, um, sort of in English and in international fora like at the UN or um, just sort of directed internationally, which didn't necessarily then translate into what was said domestically. So so. Some of my work focused on looking at the content of, of religious textbooks, for example. And, and there was definitely a clear distinction there in terms of much of the messaging directed abroad really focused on, obviously, moderation, on uh, religious toleration, on sort of the, the equality of, of various faiths. Whereas when it was actually said in Arabic and to just a Jordanian audience, the the emphasis was different. It was really more on how sort of the legacy of the Hashemite family as these the just and and the appropriate religious rulers really trying to kind of bolster their religious authority and not necessarily emphasizing as much some of the the language around religious equality or really emphasizing the extent to which Jordanian Christians, for example, are equal citizens, you know, in, in the eyes of, of the state. Uh, this was highlighted, especially in, in interviews with members of the Jordanian Christian community who, who were engaged in activism to really try and shift what they were, what their children were taught in school, for example, or the fact that from their perspective, you know, there was, there was very much this equation of to be a good citizen is to be a good Muslim and vice versa, and that there was really nowhere for a Jordanian Christian in that sort of configuration. Right. Uh, and so that sort of highlights well the period in which there was a focus on moderation after 9-11. Um, and then you note uh, in the article that the Jordanian regime has largely shifted from a strategy of promoting moderation 
uh, to emphasizing its utility as a strategic partner for maintaining regional stability uh, since 2011. Um, how significant of a departure has that been? I mean, how different are those two branding projects? Yeah, I, th- I think there, there's been interesting work uh, done by this, especially by um, Jordanian scholars like Abu Roman, for example, who, who, who look specifically at this question of the shift from kind of a Prince Ghazi-led focus on, on moderation towards more of a, a securitization and just kind of, I think, especially in the context of, of concerns about Daesh, which is when I was doing my fieldwork. So I was in, in Jordan for a good portion of, of 2015 when, when concerns about Daesh were, were quite high. And I think at, at that point, the concerns were such that it was difficult for individuals like Prince Ghazi to, to push back against the very powerful <laughs> imperative coming from more of the security side, which really said, look, we, we can't, you know, this isn't about what's in textbooks. I mean, this is, the, we really have to just face this head on um, in terms of engaging in counterterrorism. Um, and so it'd be interesting to, to see now how things have shifted now that Daesh is no longer sort of at, at Jordan's doorstep. But my my sense of it is that, you know, Jordan had engaged in a lot of this messaging. And then as other countries started to also, um, you know, countries like like Morocco started doing this, the UAE was doing a lot of this messaging. And, and more recently, Saudi Arabia has been also engaging in a lot of this promotion of moderation and, and religious tolerance. I think Jordan may have just decided that uh, the field was was getting crowded um, and especially that you know Jordan does have to be careful about the possibility of, of pissing off its powerful Saudi neighbors given again that the Hashemites used to rule the Hejaz um, so it's really just not worth it for Jordan to to risk sort of stepping on Saudi Arabia's toes at this uh, point. Right. Uh, and so you mentioned Morocco uh, which is the third case in your article uh, and as you just said, it's increasingly emphasized this sort of moderation discourse since 2011. Uh, what has happened there? Yeah, so, you know, Morocco, um, Dr. Anne Wainscott, I think, is the, the key scholar on this, um, sort of tracking the expansion of the Moroccan religious bureaucracy especially kind of since 2003 and the Casablanca bombings and the extent to which Morocco has been, in, in my view, quite successful in, in sort of promoting a narrative within which Moroccan Islam itself is, is uniquely moderate, is sort of has this, this heritage of, of toleration. Um, you see a lot of discussion of Moroccan Jews, for example, or, or the fact that during World War II, the King of Morocco prevented Vichy France from, from coming to take away Morocco's Jews, for example, even though, you know, under present circumstances, you know, the, the Jewish population of Morocco is quite tiny and, and, you know, many of them have left for Israel because many did face discrimination and, and, you know, Morocco wasn't exactly a great place for them to be. Similarly for, for Christians in, in Morocco who, who are not allowed to sort of practice openly or to open new churches or um, often just have to engage in a lot of sort of sub rosa worship. So, you know, Morocco has been quite successful in, in using the notion of Sufism in particular, kind of, which has been somewhat fetishized by those looking for so-called moderate Islam. They sort of see Sufism as, as this, this antidote to sort of 
Salafism and, and Salafi jihadism. Um, and so given Morocco's rich history of Sufism and, and center of sort of Sufi scholarship and leadership, there is, there's, there's very much there for them to draw upon, which, which is authentic and, and true. But, but part of what I try to emphasize is how, again, it's, it's similar to much of the, the scholarship on nation building, how when we're, when we're thinking about the invention of tradition, it's not necessarily that, that a tradition is untrue or that it doesn't exist in the historical record, but it's more of a question of what is the state choosing to emphasize at any given time and what sort of agenda does that serve? And so for right now, Morocco emphasizing Sufism is, is not inaccurate, but it also fails to, to recognize, um, you know, many other aspects of, of religion in Morocco. Um, and also it's these sort of claims of, of religious toleration and, and openness are belied by the experience of um, sort of different religious groups within Morocco. Right. Um, and is it sort of possible to identify the sort of motivation fueling this moderation agenda? Is it, you know, very much a function of foreign aid or, or maybe PVE? Or is it them trying to sort of take on the mantle that Jordan once had as sort of the center of moderation in the region? Or I mean, uh, for for Morocco, I, I think it's it's very important to always keep in mind the the centrality of the issue of Western Sahara and, and Morocco's ongoing claim to that territory and its push to to be recognized internationally as as the legitimate sort of ruler of that territory. Um, somewhat similar, I would say, to how in Jordan it's always important to keep the issue of Palestine in mind whenever you're you're trying to to think about the political dynamics there. I think Western Sahara plays a similar role of it's it's just always important to think about. And so you know, I think Morocco had been somewhat ostracized from the international communities, definitely from the the African Union. Um, it was recently readmitted to the African Union after decades of of not being part of that organization. So, I think Morocco has has really been engaging in this sort of charm offensive, in part to bolster its ability to then make a claim to finally settle the issue of Western Sahara once and for all. And you know, Morocco has also been quite. Um, involved in sort of effort counterterror efforts, um, it's been recognized by the United States as as doing a lot to to counterterrorism, and and also by Europe. Um, and it's often not so much about terrorists as it is about preventing migrants coming from the rest of Africa um, crossing. Um, and you know, so then this is framed in sort of oh, you know, Morocco is such a great counterterror partner, but really they're they're often a great counter migrant partner. Right. Uh, I mean, they seem to be taking on a fairly significant role in sort of policy development in the AU around irregular migration and these sorts of issues. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, Morocco recognizes the issues that are seen as, as crucial by some of the, you know, powerful global actors like the EU, and they're um, adjusting their, their policies accordingly. Uh, interesting. Um, and each of the cases you include in the article, I mean, they're all very empirically rich. And I know you know in the article that you employed some ethnographic field work in the countries. Um, would it be possible before we come to an end to just talk a little bit about how you approach the field work for this uh, research? Yeah, so so that I was 
um, getting into that a little bit in terms of, you know, much of my work was based on interviews with members of these official religious institutions. Um, and so part of that was was going and, and spending time there, you know, in the Ministry of Religious Affairs and the Office of the Grand Mufti. And, and some of it was also just about observing where these offices were, for example, you know, so for in Jordan, for example, the office of the Grand Mufti is, is way off sort of by itself, not near the Ministry of Religious Affairs. Um, when I, when I spoke with the Grand Mufti, uh, I sort of, you know, the, the interview had been arranged and um, I, I showed up ready to go. And then the, the people there were sort of like, wait, who are you and why are you here? But then, you know, ushered me in to speak with him and, and a previous Grand Mufti also came in and the individual who is now himself the Grand Mufti, but at the time was a deputy. He was also in the room. So I was sort of speaking with three of them at once. And they, and they were uh, on the one hand circumspect about me as a researcher, but, but also I think glad to have someone listen to them, <laughs> um, which which again, I, I think speaks a little bit to the sort of broader dynamic within which the the official religious establishment um, has tried to use the post 9-11 moment to, to sort of reassert some of their authority that had been undermined in the decades previously, you know, as a result of the expansion of, of sort of unofficial forms of, of Islam, you know, the the cassettes of various um, famed who were not part of the official religious establishment, you know, as well as radio shows, as well as, you know, YouTube channels or, you know, TV shows. So there had, there had been this um, explosion of religious discourse in general and the availability of, of all these kinds of interpretations and how the ulama had, had been somewhat sidelined in, in the context of all that. And so using the post 9-11 space as a as an opportunity to try to reassert some of their relevance and their authority and, and to regain um, some, some leverage kind of within the state itself. Um, so that, that was definitely interesting to observe. You know, in contrast, in Oman, for example, where I also did field work, um, the, the office of the Grand Mufti is, is sort of integral to the Ministry of Religious Affairs. It's, it's in the same building. There's much sort of pomp and circumstance uh, which is understandable in in sort of a, a wealthy Gulf monarchy like Oman, um, but but again it, it was it was very um, it was in it was so in terms of the ethnography I I I I don't make a claim to be a sort of expert ethnographer um, in in the tradition of of some of the the great scholarship that has come out of ethnographies, um, but I did try to to draw from some ethnographic techniques in terms of. Of trying to to spend time in places and and to um, get get a deeper sense for for some of the dynamics going on that that were um, not always explicitly stated. Well, it sounds like very interesting fieldwork, and it certainly turned into an interesting article, which I'm very glad we got to talk about today. So, Anel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ezra. Very happy to have the chance to to contribute. No, thanks again, and thank you to everyone who listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast.